Um, but we're in a series, it's, it's a good time actually to preach this based upon that kind of announcement. And here's why is, have you ever read a story? Who am I kidding? Have you ever watched a movie where the bad guys keep getting away with it? And all you can think of is, I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. You ever, you ever read a story like that, watched a movie? Have you ever watched a movie where the opposite is true? They don't exist, do they? You can't find those movies out. They wouldn't sell. This movie's terrible. The good guy does, loses. The bad guy wins. You know why we are like that. It, it doesn't seem to matter who you are. It doesn't seem to matter whether you believe in a creator of the universe who brings judgment. There is something inside of your DNA that deeply desires for justice to be served. It, it really doesn't matter. In fact, the whole social justice movement, although I'm not sure that it's founded on gospel principles, is is moved by this idea that something needs to be done to right the wrongs in our culture. You don't have to be a Christian to want that. But because you are made in the image of God who is fully just and fully love, that's going on in your heart. And, and today we're going to talk about something that everyone's favorite topic, the final judgment I hope you brought a guest today. <laughs> um, if you're new to Mission Hill, welcome to Judgment Day. We're so glad you're here. But the reason why I say all of that is if you're a guest today and you're wondering why in the world would they take the time to talk about judgment, that's exactly why we would. It's because if you're new to Mission Hill or if you're not new to Mission Hill, you hear a story like that and there's something in you that says that's not right. That's not right. The only reason you can say that's not right is if you have some sort of standard, some sort of idea of what right and wrong is and how it should be dealt with. And you say, that is not fair. That should be dealt with. That, that perpetrator should be brought to justice. I was talking this morning with a friend of mine. And we were talking about this issue of uh, what... If you continued on in your job, you couldn't if you had to have justice immediately. It would drive you crazy. You'd have to quit your job. Because there's just, there's just this sense in which at the same time that we feel like we must have justice, there's also a sense in which we're, we're missing so much of it. Some of you, that is the reason why you're, you've rejected God as long as you have. As you said, there's so much evil in the world. If there's so much evil in the world, then how can there be a God? And actually, Scripture answers that. In fact, Jesus in Scripture answers that. And so that's what I want to read for us this morning. Jesus, the final judgment. Because this is a text that is preceded by a few parables and some teaching about when is this going to be when you're going to deal with all of this. And Jesus, although he doesn't answer every question of every disciple in the same way, he actually is fairly clear in this passage. And it's something that we shouldn't just pay attention to, but actually we need, even though it may sound scary to you. Uh, I hope to prove that to you this morning. Let me read Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. And in my Bible, it actually has 
the final judgment above, just in case you were confused about what this was about. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people out from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Corey's prayer is my prayer, so I'll simply say amen to that and ask for God's Spirit to reveal to us. Martin Luther is famous for saying there are two days on his calendar, today and that day. Today and that day. It's, it's good. There's something about that phrase that's very helpful in understanding when we talk about Judgment Day. Um, this, is a, this is a great movie title, just so you know, right? Judgment Day. Uh, anyone grow up watching Terminator 2, Judgment Day? Anyone? Okay. I'm, I'm not the only one. I have it on Blu-ray now. If you're like, Blu-ray, what's that? Um, anyways, my favorite part about this is there's no judgment, nor is it a day. So it's, it's hilarious that it's called Judgment Day because I notice about some or many of the stories about Judgment Day that there's no judgment involved. There's, it's, it's, it's about everyone getting... Um, killed or maimed or whatever it is, unless a superhero shows up. There's no judgment. It just feels judgy, I guess. I, I'm not sure. But what's interesting about this particular passage is we get a very clear sense of what's going on during this time. And, and I want to break our morning up simply by talking, first of all, about when this judgment is coming. When this judgment is coming, uh, what it is about, or the nature of it, and then how we can be ready. When judgment is coming, what the nature of it is, and how we can be ready. So when is it coming? Well, it says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, there is a sense in which you could say this is future, and there is a sense in which you could say it was present for the disciples 
And there's a sense in which you can say it, it had already come because Jesus had already come. And I, I'm, again, I'm, I, I have positions on all of the return of Christ stuff, trust me. But they're not really for kind of public consumption, let's just say. Because I don't want to get into an argument this morning. What I want to do is stick to what's in the texts. And what's in the text is that when the Son of Man comes, when the Son of Man comes, it doesn't say when, it says when he does, then this. In other words, we're apparently on a need-to-know basis, aren't we? And we don't need to know because we don't have the confidence like the fine young lady on YouTube last week who said she is 99.9% sure that Jesus is coming in the fall of 2023. Even though Jesus is not 99.9% sure, she is. These are my problems with these kinds of predictions. Not that you shouldn't have them, but the kind of confidence is remarkable. Considering it's one of the things Jesus seemed to be quite vague about, except for this fact that he seemed to talk about something that really was going to happen and it really was important. So in this sense, I don't want to push this idea of judgment day away in, into this, you know, oh, it's, it's over a long period of time and it's not really... No, there's a real event. But it's an event that, that I think started, is happening, and will happen. It will culminate in something very different from what we know, but it is presently in the simplicity of preaching the gospel because in the preaching of the gospel, we sort ourselves out, actually. We decide for him who we are in the story. Jesus says, there's coming a day when I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats, but in a way, if you choose not to believe Jesus' words about what he says about eternal life and that he is the life, then you've already essentially made the choice for him. It's maybe just unclear to you, but it's crystal clear to him. So when we talk about when judgment is coming, all I would want to say is that it, it had happened in the sense that Jesus has arrived on the scene and this is the age that we live in. When Jesus initially came, he said, I did not come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. But when he ascended, he said, all authority has been given to me to what? To judge the nations. In that sense, he said, judgment has begun. From, the, from here on out, there is a judgment coming. And actually, we're not vague at all about what, what we need to do to obtain eternal life if we simply open up the pages of our Bible. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're doing things like the Bible reading challenge in the summer is because summer's probably when we need it Maybe the most, isn't it? Summer's when all the other things of the world show up. Summer's when real life happens for some of us, right? Some of you, that's all you do, is you have 10 months of waiting for these months. <laughs> there is a sense also that it will happen. In other words, the kind of judgment that we're experiencing is, I would say, nothing compared to what's coming. Nothing compared to what's coming. This used to be called a hellfire and brimstone sermon. Remember those? 
Um, I never really appreciated them until I really took a careful look at this text. And I thought, if this is true, I should probably tell people <laughs> that it's, it's on its way at some point. And, and again, I, I, don't, I don't want to talk too much about my own personal experience with the death of my own brother. But there is nothing like the death of someone that you love that brings the idea of the afterlife to the forefront for you. There is nothing like it. I can tell you from personal experience that when that happens to you, and eventually it will, it will, it will show up kind of like that weird stray cat or dog in your neighborhood that just shows up the most inopportune times. Right, you have those? It's like, why didn't you come when we didn't have guests? This, this, is, this is what this does. This will show up when you don't want it to. So all I am asking you, just hear, hear Jesus out this morning because now is a time to deal with this, not later. But I, I don't want to simply say that um, because that's what I think. But here's what we find in the book of Acts. So you will be reading in the book of Acts. And notice in chapter 2 of, of Acts... There is a quote that Peter uses, the Apostle Peter, one of the first, the founders of the church. Um, he quotes Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. And, and this is what he says. Uh, the, the context of this passage is actually um, a little bit of a crazy church service, essentially. Uh, some people speaking in tongues, but they're not speaking in tongues maybe like we have experienced if we've, we've watched late night television, not quite that kind of tongue speaking. This is the kind of tongue speaking where they were talking in languages that, that they shouldn't have known, but they understood because they, they, were, they were audibly clear to them. And what everyone in the crowd seems to be saying is they're drunk. And Peter's like, wait, wait, it's nine. It's nine. Like, how drunk do you have to be to be drunk at nine? No, no, no. That's not what this is, he says. He says, this is the outpouring of the Spirit of God on his church. That's what this is. Now, here's the quote. After all this, here's his, his text that he uses. After all this, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Some of you have heard this. Your elderly will have prophetic dreams, so there's hope for me. Your young men will see visions. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Okay? Some of you have heard that. Here's the rest of that quote. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All, all I'm saying is that Peter understood that the, the, the day of the Lord was, was, was going to come. I, I actually think it probably could be AD 70, that that's what they would have experienced, which was the colossal fall of the holy city of Jerusalem. Um, it's entirely possible that that's what he was talking about. But what I wanted to say is, before you get the idea that everything in this text is about the future, remember, the people that originally heard this wrote it down because they saw something happen. 
they saw things like this. They knew that God's judgment had come upon the Jewish people. I mean, Jesus, if you look in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, you see Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. Oh, I wish you would have listened more. And, and, and even in our book, Matthew, the Gospel account of Matthew in chapter 24, this whole conversation starts with 12 Jewish guys saying, hey, isn't that temple great? And Jesus saying, well, it's eventually going to leave. And they say, when? And then we have chapter 24 and 25 and 26. I'm not trying to scare you, push buttons, as much as I am to say, before you think this is all just something way off in the future, I just want to encourage you, it is in the future, and yet it's right now, and it, it has already long started. Secondly, let's talk about um, this idea of the judgment here and it's coming. Because the question everyone has, if God is bringing ultimate judgment on our sin now and in the future, why is there so much evil in the world? And here's what I would say is, turn to the book of Genesis and read chapter 6 very clearly and very carefully. And what you will find there is the exact answer to your question. God already has done that. And it turned his stomach so much. He actually promised, I'm never doing it this way again. That shows a very compassionate God. I mean, the way I've watched these movies, the way you get rid of people who just are terrible is to obliterate them all, right? That's what you do. And, and God said, uh, uh, the, the flood is the resume of God to show you that doesn't work. We still, we still go back like a dog returning to its own vomit. We still go back to the sin that we love and hold so dear. We have a real problem. It's not just that we need a do-over. We need a new heart-over. That's what we really need. And, and God's resume is the flood. That's what he was doing there. And so if you're wondering, why is it taking so long for God to bring judgment? I'll tell you why. It's because God is so loving and so patient. And as Aaron preached so well through 2 Peter 3, he actually wants as many people as possible to be able to repent. That's his heart. Now I can say, as a parent, when I truly actually loving love my children, like unselfish love, not like, oh, they're cute, love, but like, love, love. I want to hold off as long as possible before disciplining my children. I want to give them as many chances as possible. Have you ever done it, parent? I'll count to ten. Nine and a half. Nine and three quarters. What are you doing there? You're compassionately giving them more time. That's what a good parent does. Nine and nine tenths, and then the little, you know, we're like, what, what, when did we, I don't know fractions, that doesn't mean anything to me. What is that? That's, that's a compassionate heart that simply says, I want to hold off as long as possible to bring judgment on the situation, because that is what someone who loves someone does. A bad parent is like, zero strikes, you're out, or one strike, you're out. 
We have to see this as Christians, that when we see atrocities, like we saw on the screen, it will get dealt with, but it might not be on our timeline. It will get dealt with. Take comfort in the fact that it will get dealt with. Don't think for a second that God doesn't notice that. Don't think for a second that he doesn't know what should happen and what will happen. But think, maybe he's holding off because there are more people who may get a chance to repent as a result of that atrocity. This is why I think we need to spend a lot less time worrying about when judgment is coming and more time thinking about that it's coming. Right? How many of us spent more time worrying about the test that was to come rather than studying for the test that was to come? Right? I think we need to see some of this worry as actually a waste and inefficiency of our time. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. What accomplishes something is readiness. That's what actually accomplishes something. And so I want to spend some time talking about what judgment looks like. This is the second point. What judgment looks like. Well, it's very clear that it's final from the text. Very clear that it's final. Before him will be gathered all the nations. This is some sort of cosmic, global judgment. I mean, you can't just say this and not sound crazy unless it's true. Someone said to me, like, oh, some of the things that Jesus said were true and others were, no, we shouldn't listen to. I was like, well, which ones? Ones like this? This kind of text is the kind of text that gets you thrown in prison. This is when people check out and go, that guy's nuts. When all the nations are gathered before me, wait, Jesus, like you fell asleep yesterday. You? Yes. When the Son of Man, the guy in Daniel that was cosmically given a kingdom and dominion, when I stand and make my judgments, it's going to be final. This is the part that we need to pay attention to. It is final. There's no wishy-washiness in the timeline for Jesus. This obviously brings up the question of hell. It brings up the question of, will those who are getting punished, will they be ultimately annihilated? I would say no. Some of you would say yes. I would love to have a discussion about it. Um... Here's why I would say no, is especially in verse 46, it says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are opposite spectrum statements. So if you're going to say that, that hell is partial, then I would say that then you would have to say that heaven is partial, but that doesn't, there's no indication of that. But maybe we need to adjust a little bit how we understand punishment because we need to include the fact that, that no one's really sending anyone anywhere as much as the decision is also being made to go. If you've read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, highly, highly recommend it. Highly, highly recommend it. It's my favorite C.S. Lewis book. In fact, just spoiler alert, it's his favorite C.S. Lewis book. And what he does is he basically gives a fictitious image of the afterlife and does it in such a way that there's, there's a, 
I don't want to spoil it all for you, but it's essentially a book of conversations that those who are in heaven have with those who are in hell trying to persuade them to come in. And you know what? Nobody in hell seems to want to go to heaven. Because in heaven, they'd have to give up control. They'd have to give up what they love dearly. No, no, heaven's for people who have to serve somebody. So there's a sense in which C.S. Lewis is painting a picture not purely of a God who actually sends people to hell, but also people that willingly choose it. And he writes it this way, hell has a door that's locked from the inside. I think that was very helpful for me in understanding this finality part. That I think there is a sense in which hell is filled with people that no matter how long you argued with them, they would never be persuaded to give up the throne of control in their life to Jesus Christ. Not that God is not that loving, but that they are that stubborn and prideful. So I think there's two things going on there. You see this sense in which, and again, I don't want to say there is no possibility of hell being a place full of fire, but I would add this. What I found when I started to look a little bit deeper is that there are conflicting images of hell. So eternal fire is an image, absolutely. But if you look in the very same chapter of Matthew, you also see it referred to as outer darkness, which makes me think maybe we're talking imagery here. Because Jesus is light, it's outer darkness. It's a place absent from Jesus. Um, I don't think outer darkness is literal. I think it's an image to say, uh, just like we would, uh, how's your day going? Oh, it's a little dark today for me. These are dark days. You're, you're not talking like physically, right? Unless you're from Vancouver, then you are actually talking physically. <laughs> but a dark day means a bad day, a rough day, a long day, a gray day. It's also described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I've watched enough stuff to know that when you are in great physical, well, I've been in physical pain to know that when I bang my thumb with a hammer, I do not weep and gnash my teeth. Um, That is something reserved for the agony of betrayal. Mental illness. Uh, When you think of weeping and gnashing of teeth, some of you think of this, you automatically think of the image of hell, but actually it's like crying and teeth grinding. So apparently I went went to the dentist. I I have actually gone to the dentist at some point in my life. And uh, it, it, like this is only about six or seven years ago. And uh, the dentist said, oh, you grind your teeth. And I said, no, I don't. She said, absolutely you do. I said, well, how can you tell? She said, well, there's a little ridge, like, behind your teeth. You've been, you grind your teeth at night. I said, I do not. And she said, I, I said, how long would it take to make a ridge like that? She goes, somewhere between, like, 10 and 15 years. I was like, I'm a gnasher of teeth. <laughs> I just got that. What does that mean? Why do you grind your teeth, by the way? What, what do you grind? The, like, do you grind it over physical pain? Probably not. It's, more, it's stress, right? I've woken up with headaches before and went, oh, I think I've been grinding my teeth all night. Why? 
stress, anxiety. It's the slow kind of emotional pain. Now, that doesn't sound exactly like getting burned at the stake kind of pain. And I'm not trying to destroy anyone's image of hell as much as say, maybe we just need a little bit more robust and take all of these images together and say, there is something about this that is very painful, that is very eternal, that is very difficult. And I would argue that the most difficult thing about it is that no matter what kind of problem you have, there's never a solution to it. Now think about that. Think about your neighborhood. Think about this city. Think about if there was never a solution to any problem. So someone robbed your house, there was no authority to appeal to. Someone bullied you at work, there was nobody you could appeal to. You're having problems with anxiety, there was no medication, no doctors, nobody wanted to help you, everyone was in it for themselves. That would be hell for pretty much everyone here. I think that's the image that we need to carry a little bit around with us that said maybe, maybe we should tell a neighbor that we think this is coming. Wouldn't that be compassionate of us? To say if, if this is what awaits those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ, should we not spend at least a few more minutes finding out whether someone is interested. When we talk about hell and judgment, what I don't want us to do is, is hear a message like that and, and have a bunch of finger pointers saying, ha, 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 all you crazies on the deer foot. I'm going to heaven. I don't know where you're going. We should instead go, oh, my goodness. There are so many people who are driving down this road thinking being late is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And perhaps we need the final judgment snap us into reality that says, oh, it's not the most important thing in your life. Jesus Christ is going to judge this world and it is going to knock you on your feet whether you believe in him or not. My only question is, will you do it willingly or will you do it when it's too late? It will be final. It will also be clear, no confusion. My friend Paul pointed this out. I didn't know this. No commentator wanted to tell me anything about the difference between sheep and goats. Now, I went to Stampede this week. I know from a lay perspective the difference between sheep and goats. Did you guys go to it too? No? Yeah? Okay. Right? There's a difference. It's hard to tell from a distance, but when you get close, you, you can understand it a little bit. I'm not totally sure why Jesus said, I will be, it will be crystal clear to me. I'll have the sheep on my right my right, your left, as Aaron would say, and the goats on the left. Now, this right-left thing, they would understand right as a place of honor, place of power, right? Jesus is said to ascend to the right hand of the Father, the, the place of power and honor to God the Father. So the sheep get the honor of the king, and the goats do not. But Paul said the difference uh, one of the differences between sheep and goats is goats are not good followers. 
And uh, I, I know from stories of Renee, sheep are. They're very good followers. I've heard stories of, she says, come here, sheep, and they all show up. They know the voice. And Jesus said, it'll be so clear to me, it's like I have a bunch of sheep and I have a bunch of goats, and the sheep will probably willingly sit at his right hand, and the goats will probably have to be pulled on a rope because they don't want to be there. But they're going to be. There's, a, there's perhaps a stubbornness to goats that we maybe need to see here, but it's going to be that clear. There's none of this, well, you know, hopefully my good outweighs my bad sort of idea. Did you know there are full religions that are based on this idea? Weighing out the good and the bad. What's so fascinating is like, I don't believe in Christianity. It's full of judgment. I just, I believe in karma. And I said, karma still requires a judge of some kind. <laughs> Except now you've basically put the judge into who? An unknown God. You don't escape anything when you believe in, I mean, we love those videos, don't we? Eight billion views, probably three billion of me, right? Instant karma, someone does something and then they immediately get judged for it. Because we're all like, ha ha! Except if we're that person, then we're not so happy about it. But it's going to be crystal clear to Jesus. Thirdly, it will take everything into account, it will be balanced. It will have the, Jesus has the ability to see the whole story, the whole picture. Now, if you've ever watched a courtroom drama, a real one, or one on TV, or read a book, you will know that just because you have some evidence doesn't mean a conviction, and you will know that sometimes when you have a guilty party and bad evidence, you still don't have a conviction, and sometimes you have, especially real-time stories where like, if only we had all of the evidence, if only we had all the witnesses, if only we had all the fingerprints, if only we knew what was going on in the conscience of the guilty party. Well, friends, this is why we have Jesus as our judge. I'm sure glad he did not leave the judging to me because I would mess it up so bad and you would too. Why? Because we don't have all the information. You know, there's a practical side of this that actually when, when, you know, the world talks about judging and there's times when I have an idea of what I think is going on, whether I think someone's innocent or guilty, and I'll actually say, you know, I think this, but the reality is I'm pretty sure I don't have every piece of this puzzle. And so there's an excellent chance that I'm missing a very important piece of evidence that would make a very different judgment. And so you know what? I'm just going to keep my lips shut because I actually don't think I can judge properly. Do you know who you could never say that about? Jesus Christ. Jesus takes everything you do, every word you say, every thought you think, every thought you don't think, everything you don't do, all into account. That's, that's actually what the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 6, that's what it's all about. It's about everyone said, well, as long as they don't do it, it's okay, right? And Jesus is like, uh-uh, that's not how it works. Well, as, 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 as long as I don't do t think too many of these, uh-uh, that's not how that works. Jesus says, actually, here's the way I judge. I look at your heart. 
I cut through all of the things you say, all of the things you think, and I look at your heart. Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Anything else we need to put on that list? Or is that pretty, pretty comprehensive? These are what defile a person. Now, if that is the case, friends, there is not a single innocent person here this morning. Because I know you've thought about at least one of those things. And there's an excellent chance that you've thought about all of them. And a chance you've done at least one of them. So we're caught unless we have a judge who is so loving and merciful that he both makes sure that everything that we have done to offend a holy God is rightfully paid for, but also loving enough that it's like nine, nine and three quarters, nine and nine tenths. We have the perfect image of this in Jesus Christ who did not come initially to condemn the world because he knew at some point he would. He came first to say, I want to offer you a different way. I want to offer you not a way out of your judgment, but I want to pay for your judgment. I want to do this for you. What do we have to do? Believe. That's it. That's what we're asked to do. Believe that he is the one who would pay the penalty. Now, if you're brand new to Christianity, this should sound like a loophole to you. This should sound too good to be true. It is true, but it is good. That's actually why the gospel is described as good news, not okay news or relatively helpful news or good for me news. It's good news because it's good for everyone because everyone is in the same situation. And so this, as much as we talk about how it might scare us, this also gives us an opportunity to say how much it can comfort us because it can help us both sober us up but also remind us, hey, there isn't nothing in this world that happens to you that's not going to get dealt with. But it may very well be dealt with Jesus Christ's death. And it softens our accusation. It softens our judgment. Not because we can't be judgmental. We're just automatically judgmental. But because Jesus says, you can't properly judge, so just leave it to me, would you? But while you're leaving it to me, don't wait until I have to judge you. Why don't you trust in when God brought judgment day on me? Because that's what the cross is. The cross is judgment day for Jesus. He was innocent, but he was declared guilty on behalf of the people who trusted in him. He did not sin, yet he was made sin so that he might become our righteousness, thereby saying, you don't have to do good works to earn the earn your way to the Father because someone else has. And if you trust in his good works, his righteousness, he gives it to you and you passively receive it. But are, are transformed by it in a way that you begin to reflect that righteousness to the world around you. 
So what can we do to be ready? Well, I, I would say this. We can take this very fearfully. We can be terrified. We can spend our lives trying hard not to sin. Good luck with that. It won't work. Trust me, I've tried it. It doesn't work. What works is, well, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll leave us with that. That's the first thing. We can take it fearfully. But second, we can take it eventually. And here's where I'm pleading. Actually, plead is like I'm trying to be gent gentle persuasion is what I hope. I am gently trying to persuade you. Don't find out when judgment day is. You don't have to if you don't want to. If you're alive right now, you don't have to find out when judgment day is yet. Because thirdly, if you take it seriously, you don't have to worry about judgment day. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to worry about judgment day. Why do you think Jesus said, when? Not for you to know. Why? Because he said, you don't need to worry about it if you trust in me. Judgment day will be the greatest day for you because it will be the day when you'll see Jesus' gloriousness of all of the sin that he actually paid for, even the stuff you forgot about. But at the same time, all of the rights of the world, all the wrongs of the world will be righted. It's just less about when and more about ready. And so, friends, I'm just encouraging us as a church family, let's just be a church that's ready for Judgment Day. We're ready to be called to account because we're not that worried. Not because we haven't sinned, not because we're not going to sin, but because we trust in the one who did not sin but became sin for us. Friends, that's actually what we celebrate at the Lord's table. That's what we do. There are times, I think, when we... Spend time smiling because of what Jesus has done. I'm not going to say you can't smile today, but today is maybe one of those days where we have prepared some opportunities for just corporate confession and repentance. Like, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Please forgive me. And we take the Lord's table together to remind ourselves of the judgment day of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because uh, he took our judgment day from us, we, because of what's symbolized in the element, elements, do not need to take on anything promised to the goats, to those who disregard, disobey. We never have to experience outer darkness. We'll never be teeth grinders for eternity. Praise Jesus. We'll never experience physical, emotional pain. We'll never, ever be at a place where our Savior is not the solution to any problem that we may have. In fact, problems are gone. And so let's, let's sing, and then we will confess. We want to send you, and there's a part of the text that I didn't talk about, and that is, like, when, when do we see this, Jesus, or when do we not see this? And there's a sense in which Jesus said, the real test of whether you follow me is how you love each other. That's what he's saying. 
The real test, it's, it's not just following the world. Anyone can love your neighbor. It's your kids that are tough, right? It's your weird family, dysfunctional family that's really tough. Friends, the real test of whether we love Jesus will be how we love each other. So we send you, encouraging you, not simply to love your city, but to love each other. To invite someone over today, maybe that you haven't, because you just need to spend some time getting to know them so you can love them better. So we send you not to do something, but to be the church that loves Jesus Christ. And so go, we'll see you next week.